Welcome back to Art and Logic's Minimum Viable Podcast. This is part two of our discussion about non-destructive testing, featuring Bob Bajoris, Andrew Sherbrook, and Carlos Perez. So are there any other kinds of fun projects that you can share that we've worked on? or that uh, we've Fun projects? Yeah. Um, well, there's some interesting projects. Like I said, there's not all of these projects are necessarily industrial. There is the time when... Uh, we had Ben and Jerry sent us a case of ice cream. Uh, you know, so we got a case of a variety of flavors of ice cream, you know, in the regular Ben and Jerry pints. And what they were asking us if we could possibly determine, again, non-destructively, which in this case meant not opening the containers of ice cream. Um, uh, they wanted to know if, you know, the ice cream had the, uh, the correct number of chunks in it, you know, like if it's chunky monkey, you know, did it have enough of the, of the chocolate and the, and what nuts are in the chunky monkey, but, uh, or, you know, whatever the flavor was, they wanted to make sure that, you know, their quality control said, you know, it had to have a certain amount of, you know, candy pieces for, you know, uh, for every pint. Um, so we, you know, so we gave it a good shot, but unfortunately, Frozen dairy products are very crystalline in nature, and uh, sound gets dispersed rather quickly when you shoot it through a you know a crystalline structure. You know it just sort of just gets reflected off in all different directions. So we weren't able to actually do that test uh, ultrasonically. We possibly could have done it with X-ray, but uh, you know, we were looking for an ultrasonic solution. So we told them the bad news, and they told us, "Okay, well." You can eat the ice cream then, so we all want to eat. <laughs> <laughs> you could have really dragged it out and just kept testing. Like, well, we really can't right. nail it down we need yet. Some more samples, more, more samples. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. A few different flavors, maybe was, yeah. to calibrate. Right. There was another test that we did that uh, again wasn't you know real dirty, heavy, you know, industrial. It was uh, for Abbott who made you know, baby formula. And what they were trying to do was um, see if we could detect whether the formula was spoiled. So when they make the, the formula, they had to set it aside in, you know, in their warehouse for a month, or I think it was 30 days you know, before they could ship it. Because if for some reason the bottles didn't seal properly, uh, you know, by the time they got to that 30th day, you could, you know, you could look at it and visibly see that, you know, the, the formula had spoiled. Um, so they'd have to do this visual inspection you know, after 30 days. So what we were trying to do for them was uh, ultrasonically see if we could determine if the formula was uh, was spoiling. Uh, you know, if we could do it ultrasonically, then we could do the test sort of automatically. We wouldn't have, you know, it wouldn't be as labor intensive. People wouldn't have to pick up every bottle and look at it. Uh, and in this case, we were actually able to do it because. Uh, Baby formula, unfortunately, when it spoils, uh, you know, it, it's no longer as homogeneous as it, you know, as it was prior to that. So when you shoot sound into it again, it starts to, you know, get dispersed and, and attenuated. So in our, so in this application, we can actually use the fact that the sound was being attenuated as a way to sort the uh, the formula. So we set it up so that you know you have two transducers. This was actually called a through transmission test where you send sound in one side of the part and you have a separate transducer on the other side trying to receive the sound. So it's not looking for anything bouncing. It's just looking for sound shooting through it. 
So if the sound could go in one side and get detected by the transducer on the other side, then we knew that the material, the formula was still you know homogeneous and you know and that and therefore you know it was still good. Uh, but if that receiving transducer didn't get the, the sound because it was being blocked by something or you know reflected or deflected by something, then we knew that the formula was you know was spoiled. Uh, and the other neat thing about this was that you know, it doesn't spoil overnight, you know, it, it, you know, it spoils over the course of some, you know, some number of days. So using ultrasound, uh, we could detect that something was going wrong with the formula earlier than having to wait the full 30 days to see if, uh, you know, if there was actually visual, you know, indications that it spoiled. Uh, so in that application, we actually were able to do the test, unlike the, the ice cream test. That actually um, got me wondering, are there, do you think there are any kind of like consumer facing or retail possibilities for NDT? I mean, given what IoT has been for the last few years and how it's been growing and, you know, the internet of things as it's all connected and we've got devices all over the place. And I know that Google has some devices that you can attach to a furnace that will tell you if the furnace is failing or it will, I think it'll actually turn off your gas if you have a problem with your gas line automatically. So do, do you know if there are any other kind of applications for NDT that could benefit consumers, especially in combination with IoT? Not, not the sense of what I was doing, you know, like, uh, like a consumer version of any of the industrial testing that I, I was doing. Um, but you mentioned IoT, though. I, IoT is something that's, that's definitely advancing, you know, the applications that you can do with, with ultrasonic testing. Um, you know, we have one project that we worked on where the, the you know, our client builds this, you know, battery-powered, you know, device that does an ultrasonic uh, thickness measurement, uh, and it can connect back to the system that we built, you know, through cellular connections. So they can install these things in some pretty remote areas, and they just sit out there and they run, you know, for years just sending thickness measurements to you know our data collection system and the beauty there is that if you take enough thickness measurements over time you can plot how the part is wearing um, you know so in you know, a lot of their cases it's some type of a piece on a, a refinery or it's uh, you know an oil pipe that's out in you know some frozen tundra you know someplace you can't get to easily uh, but it's you know so it's connected remotely and you know, giving us a measurement every day so we can see it gradually thinning as it wears and we can project sometime in the future when that part's going to reach some minimal, you know, safety, you know, thickness. Uh, and then, you know, our client or our client's customer can then, you know, schedule to have those components uh, replaced before they actually fail. Um, but the fact that it's, you know, an IoT device that's connected out there in, in the world makes that possible because if it was, you know, the traditional handheld gauge that somebody would have to go out there and measure every day, you, know, you just logistically can't take that many measurements, you know, in that time frame. So IoT is changing the range of what's possible here. I'm guessing other stuff too, right? Like neural nets and other AI technologies and just wondering oh, what like you mentioned. Yeah, yeah. We, we we've been successful at being able to you know look at images and, and detect 
uh, you know, potential problems. But again, there, I think the industry will catch up and eventually uh, allow machines to do more and more. Uh, and maybe it has since I've been involved in it. I'm certainly not as intimately involved in it as I was 20 years ago. So, so there may be, you know, you know, much updated standards since you know I was just you know directly designing testing machines. Bob, I was wondering, like you know, with um, with I know with uh, IoT and some of the devices, like when you go to South by Southwest and people who are talking about IoT and its applications in the medical industry, and like a Fitbit or something like that, or other fitness trackers. Sometimes that they talk about is the fact that when they first started using these devices, there was like an overflowing amount of data that was produced and that it actually became sort of like a hindrance because there was just more than they knew what to do with. And it seems like with um, NDT and with the kind of device that you're talking about where you put a sensor on a pipe, that might not be the same kind of problem because you can manage that data more precisely or... Is it the is is there a potential there where would there be there there could be an acquisition of more data in ways that can reveal some things that maybe we hadn't anticipated in the past? Well, in the, the cases that we've been involved in, you know, the instrumentation is smart enough to know, you know, how often it needs to be taking measurements. Um, sure, you know, a piece of metal, of course, isn't going to wear that quickly, so you know. Even though the instrumentation could probably send you a reading every five seconds, you know it's kind of pointless. You know we'd just be flooding the system with, with unnecessary data. You know so you know the people who design these solutions, you know that they're they're experts in the industry. You know they 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 have to go through training and you know they get certified. Uh, so only certain people you know that have been certified to be able to actually design the tests that are being built. Uh, you know, they understand the physics that are involved and, and they understand uh, what kind of data, you know, would actually make sense. Uh, so those applications in the field, you know, they've been they've been pretty well worked out. So I don't see us flooding the system with too much data there. Uh, but, you know, some of the research that they're doing in the labs, of course, you know, they're probably purposely grabbing more data than they think they need for some of the purposes you sort of hinted at there, you know, that we might be able to recognize something that we didn't know was hidden in the data until we had all that data. Um, you know, so, you know, it might be the frequency of the data or it just might be how closely the, you know, we, we inspect the part, uh, you know, we can break the data down so that it's looking at the, you know, the component at different depths. So, uh, you know, we can learn, how, you know, potentially learn some things that, uh, um, yeah, that we wouldn't have seen if we were just looking at it in much bigger, sort of coarser views. But yeah, like I said, that's all done in labs, you know, R and D. It kind of has to be though, too, right? Um, just because it would be, it would drain batteries so quickly if you were sending that volume of data. Right, right. Um, yeah. So these devices, since they are, uh, you know, designed to operate out in some remote environment. Uh, you know, they're connected, um, you know, through their battery-powered devices. And, uh, yeah, you want them to run as long as possible in the field because one of the reasons they're out there is because there's some place that, uh, that's difficult to get to. So, um, yeah, so you don't want to send the data more often than you need to because, you know, one of the most expensive things that you can do in terms of power is turning on a transmitter and, and setting signals through, you know, 
a cellular connection. So these devices not only limit the number of times that they do that, they actually shut down their electronics in between, you know, when they have to send the measurements. So they, you know, they power down so that the bare minimum of the electronics is running. Uh, you know, it, it triggers, you know, once a day, for instance, to power up the ultrasonic electronics. It takes the measurements. It would then power that down because that part of the electronics isn't necessary for actually transmitting the signal over the cell connection. So then it would power up the antenna, send it. Um, and then it's not even just how often you do it. It's like how much can we compress that data so that the packets that we're sending are as small as possible. And uh, you know, so that, that also saves power. So that's, that's how they, you know, they can get these devices out in the field running for years you know, on, on a single battery. Yeah, and some of the protocols are designed to handle that already. You know, like some of the systems are using uh, uh, a, a, you know, a, a mesh network that's called LoRa or LoRa. Like if, um, and, and those systems, what they do is, um, you know, they will detect how good of a, a connection they have between, you know, where they are and where the, uh, the base is that they're, you know, they're communicating with. And depending on how good of a signal it is, it'll purposely slow down or speed up the connection. Uh, and, you know, in order to do that, it'll, you know, you know, change the number of packets that it has to send, uh, you know, with each, with each connection. Um, so all of that, you know, is, uh, allows them to conserve energy. But at the same time, it means that as software developers, we have to be able to uh, recognize and handle all those different cases. So, you know, you know, there's, you know, there's a difference between us receiving a packet of data and then opening it up and analyzing it versus us recognizing that, you know, this transmission for some reason got interrupted or slowed down. So now we're talking about actually receiving, you know, half a dozen to a dozen packets of data, you know, and reconstituting it before we actually uh, can open it up and analyze it. And it seems like when you're gathering that much data, what becomes also really essential to the process is having a really good UI and UX design team that can take that information and make it not only usable, but informative in an efficient way so that you can look at, I mean, my example, the, the example that jumped into my head, which is very separate from what you're talking about, is just getting into different cars and looking at their different displays these days. Uh -huh. Sometimes they have these smart displays and you look at it and, and it's just, it takes like five minutes just to figure out how to turn on a seat or like a, the heat, the heater. <laughs> and then right. other times you just, all you want to know is how far you're going or how to connect your phone. And I mean, it's it's far more cumbersome than it needs to be. But then they're also generating this data about the efficiency of your car. You know, it's giving you an idea of how much fuel you're using or if you're using a battery. But even that is, is you know, there's sometimes, I think there are some VWs that have just like a simple meter and you look at it and it's pretty and it makes a lot of sense. And then there are others where you get in and they're just, it's, it's so detailed that you're kind of like, all right, um, am I being efficient right now or am I not being fuel efficient right now? All right. So... Yeah, and so, I, I mean, I think about how the accumulation of data really depends on an, the talent to to make it digestible, easily digestible. No, no, definitely. I, I mean, you know, you capture a lot of data over time, and, you know, you can present it in a very raw form, you know, just a, a table. You know? So, you know, when the operator's looking at a table of data, you know, if they, you know, 
sure, they might be able to look through it and recognize, you know, oh, these numbers look like they're out of range or something. But uh, yeah, we have to go much, much further than that. You know, we'll take the data and, you know, everything becomes color coded and make it easily to, easy to, you know, find the ones that are out of range. Uh, you know, there's, there's different levels of it being out of range. So, you know, they can see those clear different colors. Uh, and then we also, you know, can show it in, you know, different types of formats, like, you know, graphical formats. And, uh, uh, and we can also, since these, uh, this data could be from multiple locations too. You know, we we take those results and we can tie them to, uh, you know, to a map so that it's it's easy for some operator who's sitting, you know, back in Kansas City to look at something and say, oh, you know, there's there's a problem with the plant in Toledo. It's it's you know it's right there on the map, uh, you know, and I can see that it's yellow, so it's not quite as bad as the one over here that's red, or <laughs> you know, so. Yeah, there's there's lots of things that you can do to make it easy to to interpret the data, um, and then not just what the, how to interpret the data, but you know you design it so that it's easy to then interact with the interface to know how to respond when you see those things. You know, you don't have to dig through the interface to figure out what's going on. You just, you know, if there's something that's red, you know, make it easy for somebody to you know select that area and drill down into it and show you why it's red. You know, and then they can decide, you know, is this something they can just resolve remotely or do they need to pick up the phone and call somebody? Yeah. And in that instance, it would make it easier to share it with somebody who doesn't have the same level of expertise to know what they're looking at, too. You could just say, look, it's red. Right. Or, you know. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Because the people who are operating the equipment are actually, uh, you know, they're trained to operate the equipment. But they're good chance they're not actually certified to design these tests. So they don't necessarily always understand exactly how the test is being performed. Uh, they're just they just know that they need to look for these results. And yeah, so they just, you know, they need to be able to see the results that they're expecting presented in a way that's easy for them to interpret. Um, you know, and then it's they know how to respond once they see something that's you know out of tolerance. But they don't need necessarily understand how that result was derived. The only question I had is appropriate for art and logic and what perhaps isn't. Well, I mean, since art and logic's inception, we've already you know, we've always been really good at interfacing with hardware devices. And you know, that's what we have in the NDT industry is, you know, a lot of instrumentation that can take current measurements and um, what we need to, you know, what, what we can do is we, we have the ability to capture that information and then, you know, combine it with other information to do sort of higher level analysis that the instrumentations, you know, the instrumentation that's actually just taking that sort of single measurement just can't do because it doesn't have uh, any other information that it can combine with that. You know, so they're kind of like, you know, this is just the uh, sort of the, the lowest level component in the system is, you know, this instrument that's measuring the thickness or is measuring, you know, whether there's a flaw there. Uh, and, you know, unless you can make some analysis based on a single point, um, you need the software so that it can combine measurements and, and data from you know, multiple systems or the same instrument over certain, you know, over time. And, and, and that's where we, you know, we can come in. 
And that can be, you know, custom built for a specific system or solution, or in the case of the piston inspection system that we designed, that was designed to be very, you know, highly configurable. Uh, it, it could do linear testing as well as cylindrical testing. So it didn't have to do just, uh, you know, a piston, you know, that was, you know, that was spinning. It could do a linear test. So maybe you take the exact same software, configure it differently, and now it can be inspecting, uh, you know, the integrity of a weld coming out of a pipe mill. Uh, you know, so that was kind of a, a step for Krautkramer that, you know, that was, a little bit different than what they traditionally had done. Their traditional thinking there was that all of these testing machines had to have some type of custom software written to, you know, address that application that they were building the machine for. Having some piece of software that could be reused for other applications was, you know, somewhat of a new direction for them. As far as I know, that's, uh, that software was used over the course of maybe 10 years, <laughs> they were still using it. I'm debating whether to ask anything about the hardware, you know, given that we're a distributed software company. Well, working with hardware always requires you have some type of access to it. So, uh, you know, we've had a variety of six levels of success there, depending really on how accessible the hardware was. Um, you know, with the system we worked on with Krautkramer, uh, you know, we went pretty far without having actual hardware in hand. But once we got into, you know, real testing of the, uh, the acquisition of the of data and, and visualizing it, uh, you know, we ended up having to have, you know, somebody bring out a little fixture that, you know, sort of emulated or simulated what the, what the hardware was gonna look like to us. Um, and then it became a lot more real. I think the, the project manager at the time, you know, Really, that's when they finally really grasped, you know, what was what, what was going to happen here when they finally saw the machine, you know, sort of spinning this little block of aluminum, you know, with a little hole drilled in it past the transducer so that it would generate this, you know, this, this artificially created, uh, you know, defect. Um, you know, and other times, you know, we don't have access to this, you know, to the hardware and we have to set up, uh, you know, some type of remote way of getting to it. Um, sometimes, you know, we can do that without, you know, interventions, uh, you know, by the client on, you know, at the machine. And sometimes, unfortunately, it actually requires, you know, the, the, you know, that work to be coordinated with their availability because, you know, maybe we can access the machine and capture images, but unless there's somebody there physically putting a part into the machine for us, <laughs> you know, we can get some pretty boring looking images <laughs> without parts. There was another application I remember working on that was that was kind of fun because it was uh, it, it was uh, it required a security clearance to work on it. <laughs> and at the time, you know, I had a security clearance when I worked at my previous employer, but you know, security clearances don't go with you. So I didn't have a security clearance at the start of the project. So uh, we were inspecting fuel rods for nuclear submarines. And uh, the design of fuel rods for nuclear submarines is quite different than the design of fuel rods that go into a commercial reactor plant. And these, these are more of a sandwich type design as opposed to a tube. 
And uh, I think that the the premise of the design or the purpose of the design like that is so you can get more energy out of it faster, you know, which is important, you know, if you're powering, you know, a submarine. So, uh, so anyway, we, we got to the point where we finally had to actually see the part and my security clearance hadn't come in yet. So uh, I, I went to the manufacturer of the, of these fuel rods and uh, they had to put these goggles on me. You know, they were taped up with duct tape <laughs> and they had to lead me through this factory. You know, and and I, it just seems like they purposely led me through the factory in the most inefficient way they could. Just, I, <laughs> I couldn't retrace my steps. <laughs> but it, it involved multiple stairways, which if you've ever tried to go down stairways, you know, uh, with a blindfold on, uh, it's not enough information for the person to tell you that there's a stairway coming up. They really need to tell you whether it's going up or down. <laughs> <laughs> But I eventually made it to the area where this machine was that they were testing these parts, and uh, it was all covered off by, uh, you know, separated off by these, uh, you know, kind of blankets <laughs> uh, so that, you know, I couldn't see anything other than just the machine that I was looking at that we were going to be, you know, hooking the equipment up to. So, you know, I, I got there, and he took the blindfold off. I was looking at it, and he says, okay, let me show you how it works. And he's going to show me how it uh, <clears throat> How it you know how it would run through the part and he hits the button on it and it doesn't go and then he's like oh yeah that's right it uh, it has these interlocks on it that that stop it from operating if the part isn't properly seated so he says I'll be right back so he goes and he gets a part you know and brings it in sticks it into the machine hits the start button and I see it like how the transducer is going to scan across the part and then he looks at me and he realizes like oh shoot, you're not supposed to be able to see those. <laughs> so, so, so he grabs it and he like takes it out of the room as fast as he can, which, you know, I, it didn't matter to me. I mean, I, I kind of already knew what they looked like, but uh, it was just funny because of all the, you know, the, the rigmarole that we went through to get me there so that I wouldn't see these things. And he, like, <laughs> he purposely picks one up and puts it in front of me. <laughs> uh, but we built the machine and uh, well actually we didn't build the machine we built you know all the electronics that went to the machine uh this was a custom software project where we were imaging what the uh this sandwich of zirconium plates and you know uranium fuel uh looked like um it tested it out, all worked great. We shipped it, and then they went out of business, and it never got used. <laughs> as far as I know, it could still be in the same warehouse that it was shipped to 25 years ago. I don't know. Thank you, Bob. Thank you, Andrew. That was really a wonderful and informative discussion about non-destructive testing. Oh, you're welcome. It was fun talking about it, reminiscing of past times. <laughs> Yeah, pleasure to be here. Thanks, Carlos. Thanks for joining us for another Art & Logic Minimum Viable Podcast. It's produced by Adam Singleton with music by Andrew Sherbrooke. Bye.